You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, 1 Timothy 6 is where you need to be. And if you have stumbled in on us, you have stumbled in on the ninth part of a set of sermons called Gospel, Greed, and Generosity. And it's actually the last part. And so we've been around a lot of what the Bible has to say about money and possessions. Not all of it, but we've covered some, some sections of, of what the Bible has to say. So from Luke 18 to Luke 12 to Matthew 25 to Philippians 4... Um, We've kind of been around the horn on on this issue. So this is two months in the making for us to get to this last day. And so I want you to know just kind of what my plan is as we wrap up this set of sermons today. Um, I'm going to recap why it is that we spent two months in like a set of sermons on money and possessions. Why is it that that we wanted to do that? And uh, and then we're going to work through some of 1 Timothy 6. And then we're going to finish today off... Um, and if you've been around for a while, you know how this kind of works, where when we finish a longer set of sermons, we open up the floor and allow our church to mutually encourage one another on how the Spirit of God has been stirring some things up in them and how it's been pressing upon them. And so with that said, I want you to get ready for that. Um, here in about 30 or 35 minutes, we're going to stop and uh, we'll have some guys with microphones. And we would really love to hear from you if God has been at work in you through this set of sermons. And so you don't have to be bashful. Um, if, if God has been doing some things and really been working at, you know, on you, um, this would be a great moment to, to be able to encourage our church family in that way. And just to preface that, we aren't looking for a theological debate, a question and answer, or another sermon. We're just looking for a concise, this is, <laughs> we don't need another sermon, I'll promise you that. Um, uh, but this is just a concise picture of what, what God's been doing in you over the last um, few weeks. And so with that said, we'd love for you to be ready for that. Okay, so five reasons uh, why we wanted to do a set of sermons on money and possessions. Here's reason number one. is money and possessions. It's a dominant theme in the Bible. So, uh, you know, I, I, just to hit this really quickly, we've said this numerous times, that 2,350 verses in the Bible deal with money and possessions. If you tally up all the passages or verses in the Bible that deal with prayer and faith, there would be twice as many that deal with money and possessions. So I, I just want to make the point that it is a huge motif that runs throughout the pages of scripture. You get into the New Testament and 15% of the words of Jesus deal with this specific area or issue. Um, Almost half of his roughly 40 parables have this intertwined in the midst of it. So you just got a huge dominant theme that we want to be really faithful to. And, And let me just remind you of the answer to this question. Why is it that God would give so much biblical real estate to this issue of money and possessions? Why is that? And here's the answer to that. Because God loves you. That's why. And he knows that money and possessions kind of form this ruthless competitor for the affection of your heart. And so the reason he gets so much real estate to this issue is because he loves you and doesn't want that competitor to gain ground in you. So it's a dominant theme in the Bible. Here's reason number two. Is that we need to be biblically informed about money and possessions. That we culturally in our church world need to be biblically informed. Like, in other words, we need to get the perspective of God given through the Bible about this issue of money and possessions. This is going to be up on the screen for you, but Randy Alcorn in his book, uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity says this. 
My interactions with people as a pastor, teacher, counselor, and researcher, as well as my observation of my own tendencies, have convinced me that in the Christian community today, there is more blindness, rationalization, and unclear thinking about money than anything else. And you can just test yourself here. Like, ask yourself the question, in the way that you think about money and possessions, has that been more shaped by a consumeristic culture or more shaped by the Bible? Like, ask yourself that question. And I think if God would give us some self-awareness right now, we would probably see that much of how we think about money and possessions has been formed from a culture around us, not from the Bible. You know, when I think about um, what has happened to me over the last um, really six months as I've been dealing with, with this material in the Bible, um, I, I've likened it to an, an imagery here. So you're going to have to play with me just for a second. So imagine a whole group of people living underwater, like a whole city of people that are living underwater. So you've got people who do just what you and I do, but they do it un- under the surface. So they work, they eat, they recreate. They do all the things that you and I do. They just live under the water. So they've got a regulator in their mouth. They've got a mask over their face, a a, a tuba, you know, a tank uh, strapped to their back. They've got all the gear on to live underwater. And and generation after generation does this. And, And so you've got now little boys and little girls who grow up become moms and dads who have, have kids. They grow into grandparents and die. And all they know is life with a regulator in their mouth, a tank on their back, a mask on their face, like life underwater is all they know. Now imagine for a second that's you living under the water and somebody grabs you and they start to bring you to the surface. And it feels like in that moment, they're about to kill you. They're, you're about to die. This is home. They're they're ripping you out of home. And all of a sudden you bust through the surface and they rip the regulator out of your mouth and you realize for the first time, wow, maybe I'm not created to live underwater. Now, let's just talk about this in terms of greed. That, That we have a whole culture that is submerged under the water of greed and, if, and this is what's happened to me, and I hope it's happened for you. I feel like that God, in his grace, has, has begun to pull me to the top. And it actually, a few times, it's felt like he was trying to kill me. And then he's ripped me through the top of the surface, pulled the regulator out of my mouth. And there's like been this realization of, well, maybe I'm not created to be greedy. Maybe I'm actually created for God. I mean, maybe that's true. And, and so I hope that's happened for you. And so there is a deep need in our culture to be biblically informed on these things because our culture is living under the water of greed. Here's the next reason. Number three is that we really want you free from the love of money. We really want you free from the love of money. Craig Bloomberg wrote a book um, surveying all the biblical passages from Genesis 1 to Revelation the end. Uh, all the biblical passages that deal with money and possessions. And here was kind of a summary statement that he gave in his book on that. He said, it is arguable that materialism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today, including many in the invisible church. And one of the reasons that we wanted to do this set of sermons is because I think it's for our church family in particular, probably the greatest competitor for our souls in this room. I think it's the greatest competitor. And so we've, I've tried to affirm this numerous times throughout the last couple of months, but we did not do this set of sermons because we wanted something from you. 
We did it because we wanted something for you, namely that your heart is free from and unentangled by the love of money and greed and inordinate desire for money and material things. That's why we're doing it, because we want you to be free to love God and to live with God with a reckless abandon. So we want you free from the love of money. Number four, it's a crucial area of discipleship. And we've talked about this uh, for the last two weeks, how in our culture specifically, dealing with money and possessions, giving and generosity is the most reliable guide, the most reliable test for you to determine if you are a fan of Jesus or actually a follower of Jesus. It is your most reliable guide to that. In our culture, it is the one thing that pushes people and separates them, creates a division within people. And so we've needed to do this because it's a discipleship issue. It's a way for you and I to look at ourselves and to ask hard questions about our heart and where a love for God is as opposed to a love for other things. So, so we hope it served you in that way, that it's been a moment where God has moved you forward in your relationship with him. And number five, we want you to see how the gospel prunes greed and promotes generosity. Big picture wise, here's what I was most concerned about. I wanted to make sure our church family connected the dots between the perfect life of Jesus, his death on the cross for our sin and his resurrection. I wanted to make sure we connected the dots from what Jesus is or who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to greed and to generosity. I wanted to see 2 Corinthians 8, that if we're going to be a generous people, here's what it requires for us to grasp the gospel. It's going to require us, 2 Corinthians um, 8, 9, to to make sure we're seeing that Jesus was rich, yet he became poor, so so that you and I who are in poverty might actually be rich in him. That we're going to have to get that. We're going to have to get that Jesus is actually enough to satisfy our soul. And when we get that, generosity is unleashed, right? So that greed and generosity are really gospel issues. They are directly connected to the life and work of Jesus, So that's been the reasons why we wanted to do it. Now, um, to kind of finish and land the plane of this series, 1 Timothy 6 is where we're going to be. So you need to be looking at your Bible. We're going to start in in verse 3. Paul says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people, among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now, if you want to know if you're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, you can look at the last phrase. It's going to be your test. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. See, what what Paul is saying here, just to be real clear, is you living well and loving Jesus is not a way for you to be worldly rich. It's not. Like godliness is not a way to, to like monetary gain, to temporal gain. It's not a way for that. So if you're looking at loving Jesus and thinking, well, surely that means I'll be rich. There's a problem here. Like Paul is saying that that is not true. If that's how you think, you think wrongly about life and about the Bible and about the way this thing works. That Listen, living for Jesus and loving Jesus is just as likely to cost you money as it is to gain you money, right? So you just ask the, the business guy who doesn't get the contract because he won't shade the truth when his competitor will. See, it's just as likely to cost you money as it is to gain you money. 
See, if you're looking for, for like a life lived for Jesus as a life lived richly, it, it's just wrong. I just want to make sure that break is there. That should seal the door on that issue. Okay, now keep going here. He's going to clarify though, because there is great gain with this deal. Okay, but, but here it is. Verse six. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Okay, so if you want to know how to gain, and gain in verse 5 and gain in verse 6 are used differently. Gain in verse 5 is primarily a monetary gain. Gain in verse 6 is like a soul, eternal, what is really valuable gain. And Paul is saying, if you, if you want to know where great gain is, here's where great gain is. It's in godliness with contentment. Now, just to jog your memory to a few weeks ago, uh, we define contentment like this. It's a heart that is fully satisfied in God, regardless of the circumstances. Regardless. So it's a heart that is fully satisfied in God, regardless of how crazy life is. That's contentment. A heart that's fully satisfied in God, regardless of the circumstances. And Paul is saying, if you want to know where great, like soul gain, wealth, like real wealth, which is really valuable. If you want to know where that is, here's where it is. Godliness with contentment. Godliness with a heart that is fully satisfied in God. I mean, who doesn't want that? I mean, would there be anyone in the room who who would say this? I want my life to hinge on if I can get the next thing. I want my life to hinge on if I can get the next house, the next. Nobody would want that. We would all say that we would love for our heart to be uh, not affected by if we get it or we don't. We would love to have a steadiness. We would love a heart that is fully satisfied in God, regardless of if life goes well or if everything falls down around us. If we get the promotion, if we don't, if we can get this, if we, we would love to have a heart that's fully satisfied in God, regardless. Paul is saying, this is where great gain is. Not in gaining more stuff, but in contentment. Not needing more stuff. That's where great gain is. Okay, so so he goes on here, verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. He's going to give you a reason for contentment. Because all those things that you're looking to for life, you don't get to take any of those things with you. When, When you die, those things are over. I love how one pastor illustrated this point. He said, imagine a guy going through the metal detectors in an art museum. He goes in, he searched on the way in. And he starts looking around at this art and and you see this guy and he grabs like the art off the wall and he puts it under his shoulder. And then he's got this little mini statue that's worth like $4 billion and he puts it in his backpack. And then he gets another piece of art off the wall, puts that under his shoulder. Another piece puts that under his shoulder. And this guy's like weighted down under all this art that he has got off the wall and, and is carrying around. And, and now imagine you going up to him and saying, man, what are you doing? Why do you have the art off the wall and like you're carrying this stuff? And he looks back at you and says, well, I'm an art collector. This is what I do. I collect art. And you, you just gently try to remind him that you, you know you don't take any of those things out of the building, right? You know that you're going to leave like in an hour or two and, and all of that stuff is left behind. Like, you're, like you've got a statue in your backpack waiting you down that you, you don't get to leave with. You know that, right? And just imagine him looking back and saying, man, why, why are you spoiling all the fun? I mean, why can't we just live in the moment? I mean, why can't we just live for, for like right now? Who cares about an hour from now? Now lay that over our life and see if you can see the similarities. 
That, that what Paul's saying here is you're not taking any of it with you. Yet most of us are living like the foolish art collector, seeing how much we can kind of weight our life down with for the few seconds that we live here. Are, are you seeing that? Paul's just gently reminding you, you're not taking any of it with you. All that stuff that's so valuable to you right now is going to be in a dump in a matter of years. All of it, your clothes, your house, just, there's going to be a day it'll be bulldozed down. You're, the whole thing, all those things that are so valuable, they're all fleeting. We don't take any of them with us. And then he goes on, look at the next verse. Verse seven, for we brought nothing, oh, verse seven, we brought nothing into the world and cannot take anything out of the world. Now, next verse, verse eight. But if we have food and clothing with these, we should be content or will be content. That's a clarification of what contentment is right there. So when he says content up here in verse um, six, here, here's what that means. That means that our heart can be fully satisfied in God. Like we can be just fine. If we have, look at the words, food and clothing. Let me just remind you of that. Food and clothing. Now think about what he doesn't say there. He he doesn't say a particular type of brand of clothing. He doesn't say a steak. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's not on the list that we can be just fine. Like our heart can be fully satisfied in God without those things. Are you saying this is a clarification? See, one of the problems in our culture, and this is me too, this is all of us, we all need to hear this, is we have got an overinflated view of what we need. We have a sumo appetite for need. We need everything. Think about all the things over the last month that you have said you need. Here's the truth. You probably don't need any of those things. Like not one of those things. Probably none of those things fit this category of food and clothing here. And see, we've got this sumo appetite for need. And here's what it makes us. When we read passages like this, it makes us look at this passage and think, that's ridiculous. There is no way God knows what he's talking about here. But this is what it makes us feel like. See, when when you read a passage like this, here's what it forces you to do. It forces you to ask this question. Do I actually think God knows what he's talking about? I mean, do I really think he knows what he's talking about? Do I really believe the Bible or do I not? Because everything in our culture would say, this is not right. Food and clothing, you cannot be content. You cannot be fully satisfied. And God's saying, listen, your heart can be fully satisfied in me without all the things that you think you need. With all of those. I love what uh, G.K. Chesterton said. And I said this several weeks ago, but he said, there are two ways to get enough. In other words, there's two ways to be just fine. There's two ways to, to not want more stuff. There's two ways. One is to accumulate more and more. To try just to get everything you think you want. There's one way to do it that way. And here's the other way. The other is simply to desire less. Just to desire less. And can I just say what I think a lot of us need is just to desire less. See, this is the ironic thing in the Bible. And I would base this off Luke 18, the rich young ruler, and several other places. But I, I think it's interesting that the more we desire things, the less we desire God. Like the more we think we need things, the less we think we really need God. I mean, do you see that, that link there? That the more you, your heart buys into, I can't live without this thing, the more your heart is buying into, God is not big enough for me to live with. And then look at the warning of a lack of contentment. So when, when contentment is not there, look at what happens. Verse 9, 10, or 9 and 10 here. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So can you just hear, I want you to look down at this passage, 9 and 10. Look at those two verses and just pray that the Spirit of God would give you that warning. That somewhere deep in your soul, that, that something would happen in you right now where you would remember these two verses. And, and look at the words in them. Look at the words. I mean, he could not be more vivid in language. You desire to be rich, here's what that means. That's a temptation. That's a snare. Here's the results. Senseless and harmful desires. Here, here's the result of a love of money. Ruin and destruction. Do you see that in verse 9? Now look at verse 10. Here's the, here's the result of greed. All kinds of evil. Here's the result. Wandering away from the faith. Here's the result. Piercing, piercing themselves with many pangs. I mean, it could not be more vivid language to try to warn you and I with. If we love money, it goes bad for us. It leads to a terrible place for us. Ruin and destruction would describe that place. And we need to see that. We need to feel that. That is the Holy Spirit and just grace upon us to write that where we can read that this morning. I love what one author said. He said it this way. What you do with money or desire to do with it can make or break you for eternity. Now hear that. What you do with money or desire to do with it can make or break you. Make or break you. Now look at verse 10. You see it where it says it leads to all kinds of evils? See, when, when, you, when, when you love money or I love money, it makes us sacrifice more important things to get it. Now think about that for a second. When you love money, it will make you sacrifice things that are much more important than money to get money. See, this is the reason that so many dads make their wife widows and their kids orphans because they're chasing what they really love, money. Now sail on that for just a second. When you love money, you will sacrifice more important things to get it. And it's not just a family issue. This is a faith issue. He's saying here in verse 10 that here's the result. You will wander away from the faith and you will pierce yourself with many pangs. So, so just let that warning settle over your soul this morning. That there is a warning against a lack of contentment. Okay, now we've got verse 17. Look at 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. And Paul is about to address the rich. Do you see this in verse 17? As for the rich in this present world, in this present age. Now, now I, I feel like we need to clarify this because here's what happens. We're all totally self-deceived on who's rich in this deal. So all you need to convince yourself that you're not the rich one in the room is to know one person that's richer than you are. Okay, so just know that about you. Don't be deceived here. You live in the richest country that's ever lived and you live in the land of suburbia, which is one of the richest places in the richest country. So, so even for those of us in the room who do not have much, I, we would still fit this category, right? And so I, I just need you to feel that first, that, that we're all, that this word right here, I think Paul could just say in here, hey, just a warning to Stonegate Church, a warning to people who live in suburbia. I think he could just as easily have said that. 
Okay, so here he goes. As for the rich in this present age, charge them. He's about to tell us some things here that we need to consider. Okay, and I've got four of them. Charge them. Here's the first one. Not to be haughty. Okay, if we're going to say that in a positive way, here would be the charge. You need to be humble. Be humble. I need to be a humble person in regards to money and possessions. See, here's how, this is an interesting thing in how money and possessions work. Imagine yourself as a business owner and you just blow up. It just goes great for you. Do you know what you're really likely to do? Be very prideful and think it's because of you. And see, if you're the person here who's, who's made a go at businesses a couple of times and you've absolutely failed, do you, do you know what's, what's likely to happen for you? It probably is going to, just because it's beaded into you, probably is going to create a little more of a humble posture in you. But see, when, when, when life actually goes well for us, our job goes well, our business has gone well, I mean, we just can do no wrong in this area. Do you know what it typically makes us? Prideful people. That's normally the result of that. That's why singling out people with wealth here. Saying you need to be careful that you don't become haughty. See, money's primary attractions for us, primary attractions are the pride it feeds and the power that it gives. That's the primary attractions. And see, if it's gone well for you in your job, in a business, whatever, then, then you, chances are you have been seduced to some degree towards pride and power. And so Paul is saying here, you need to be careful that you are not haughty, that you are not an arrogant, self-righteous jerk, that you need to be very careful, be aware of your soul to make sure that you are a humble person. Stonegate, can can we just pray this for ourselves that God would make us a humble church family, that God would make us a humble people, not haughty, not arrogant. Here's the second one. So as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. And here's number two, nor to set their hope or hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but instead on God. See, the great danger with wealth is it will lure your hope into God's gifts as opposed to God. This is the danger of wealth, that you're going to start hoping in what God has given you as opposed to God himself. And that is like recipe for disaster in this room. When we start looking to God's things as opposed to God to save us. Okay, now I want everyone to look at me in the eye here. None of the things that God gives you, family, friendships, money, possessions, house, cars, fill in the blank. Any gift from God to you. None of those were given by God to you in order to save you. None of them. Only God can do that. You hear that? Only God can. That's it. Only God can save you. So so just hear that. Set your hope on what's certain, God, not on what's uncertain, his riches, his his gifts, things that he would give you. Maybe I could say it this way. Wealth or riches will never solve your ultimate problems. It'll never solve your ultimate problems. The only thing wealth can do is trade one set of problems for another one. It will not solve your ultimate ones. It will just trade one set for a different set. That's it. Um, Madeline Levine is a psychiatrist um, in San Francisco of all places and wrote a book called The Price of Privilege. 
And she, uh, the subtitle was How Parental Pressure and Material Advantage Are Creating a Generation of Discontented and Unhappy Kids. Okay, so that, you, you get her whole message of her book right there in the title. Okay, now I don't agree with like much of the uh, solutions to the problem. So I think that she is onto something in trying to pose this as a legitimate problem. So, so this is one of the summary statements of her book on posing the problem. She says, America's newly identified at-risk group is preteens and teens from affluent, well-educated families. New at-risk group, teens, adolescent people from affluent, well-educated families. In spite of their economic and social advantages, they experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, somatic complaints, and unhappiness of any group of children in the country. She goes on to say that 22% of adolescent girls in affluent uh, families... And we would be in that category generally in this room. In an affluent, 22% suffer from what would be clinically diagnosed as depression. And that's three times higher than the national average. Now, I'm just saying all of that to say this. Money does not solve ultimate problems. All it does is trade one set for a different set. That is it. If you're looking for money to be a savior from you, here's what you're going to find out. That it turns into salt water that makes you thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. It reminds me of Jeremiah Burroughs. We, I read a quote from him earlier in this series. Um, he wrote a book on contentment, an old Puritan, who he said, when, when we are setting our hope on wealth and riches, it's as if we are a man who is opening his mouth and, and taking in the wind and trying to eat the wind and wondering why he's not full. Here's why. Because you weren't created to eat wind. And see, a lot of us have this assumption that if I can just get this amount, then I'll be fine. And you're not going to be fine. It just trades one set for a different set. That's all it does. So so why wouldn't we hear this warning and say, yes, God, help me by your grace, set my hope on what's certain, namely you. Number three, he's going to tell us to give generously. Look at verse 17. This is God saying this, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are, okay, so he's talking to rich people and he's saying that that God provides everything richly to enjoy. And they, the rich people he's talking about, Stonegate Church, us, suburban culture, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Okay, now I I want you to see from from this passage something that I haven't made overtly clear in this series, but I want to make sure I do that to make sure this is balanced well. God is not against rich people. Are you hearing that? God is not against people who have money. God is not against wealth. God created wealth and it says God is the one who gives it. So God is not against these things. God is against materialism on one hand, who looks at the abundance of things for their hope, like sets their hope on the abundance of things. And on the other side, God is against asceticism, like setting your hope on the lack of things. God is against both of those, but God is for a person setting their hope fully on him, rich or poor. So God is not against wealth. He's not against rich people. He's against hopes that are not set on him. 
He's for hopes that are set on him. So let me clarify it this way. I'm going to give you four categories of people in regards to um, money and possessions. Four categories. Here's category number one. Be on the screen. They are the righteous rich. The righteous rich. They are people that God has entrusted with a lot of, of material things. And they see themselves as middlemen. God is the owner. We're the stewards. Our job as the middlemen is to get what God has given to us, this money, to the front line of what God is concerned about, mission. So this is what we, we see ourselves as middlemen. This is the righteous rich. And from day one of the church, the righteous rich have played a huge role in resourcing the church to accomplish the mission. So this is Acts 1, 2, 3, 4. You've got wealthy people resourcing the mission. Okay, so you've got the righteous rich. Then you've got the righteous poor, where they are poor, not because of sin and evil on their own part, but life has dealt a really difficult hand, right? So, so this is, this is the, the righteous poor. This is um, the widow in Luke 21 who get, is giving generously. See, she still sees herself as a middle, as a middle person, middle woman. She sees herself like that. that, that God has entrusted something to her. She's a middle kind of in the middle of this thing, and she is to get that to the mission. This is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. You remember the Macedonian Christians, Macedonian churches, extreme poverty, severe affliction. They are poor people, but they are still middlemen. They are still giving generously. So you've got the righteous rich, and then you've got the righteous poor, and then you've got the unrighteous poor. This is the sluggard in Proverbs 7. This is the lazy person. And, and the Bible's clear. You don't work, you don't eat. See, there is a way to be poor that is sinful and evil. This is the unrighteous poor. And then there's the unrighteous rich. They are the people who God has entrusted a lot of material things to, yet they do not see themselves as middlemen. They, they, they don't see themselves like that. They, they see themselves as the owner, not God. And, and so all of what God has entrusted to them is going to build their little personal kingdom. This is the unrighteous rich. So, so see this. The issue is not rich or poor. The issue is righteous versus unrighteous. That's the issue. Th that's who God is for or against. It's a righteous, unrighteous, not a rich, poor issue. So it really begs this question. Are you fitting into the picture of a good steward, a good manager of the money that God has entrusted to you? That's the question. Are you being a good steward? Now to answer that question, verse 18 is helpful. Here's what the righteous do, rich or poor. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Clarify, this is what that means. To be generous and ready to share. So you've got to ask yourself the question, am I that? That's what God would want. This is what the righteous rich and the righteous poor, this is their posture towards the world and to their money and possessions. If, if I had one thing that I prayed most consistently, it would be for this, that God would give every one of us at Stonegate this posture towards our money and possessions. God is the owner, we're the stewards. It's all his. If he wants 1% or 100%, he can tell me tomorrow and it's all his. That that would be your posture, that would be my posture, that we would see ourselves as the middlemen. And we'll finish with this. He's going to tell us to think about eternity. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. They are to do good to be, or this is starting in verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here's the result of that. Thus, storing up 
treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, Paul, just like Jesus in Matthew 6, 21, is telling us we need to be thinking about the future. Not like one day from now, but like one million years from now future. We need to be thinking about eternity. And see, and really it boils down to this. Do we believe that there is an eternity? Do you believe in eternity? Do I believe in in eternity? And that every time I give now, I'm actually enlarging my experience of it? See, the question is, do we believe that? See, if we believe that, I think it would unleash a lot more generosity in us. Do we really, okay, listen to this. Do we really believe in eternity? And that every time we give now, sacrifice now, we are enlarging our experience of it. We are, we are laying a foundation. We are storing up treasure for, for the life that is truly to come. Do we really believe that? I'm going to give you this illustration one more time, and then we're going to open up the floor. Um, I gave it, uh, this is probably week three or four in this series, but Randy Alcorn, I think, just gives it a, a wonderful illustration of this idea of eternity and, and having a, a forward orientation to how we're thinking. Do you remember the Confederate money analogy? Then imagine yourself in the, in, the, in the South during the Civil War, and you're a northerner, and after the war, you're going to return home. And you have amassed all this Confederate money, all this Confederate currency while you've lived in the South. But you just got news that the war was about to be over. And when the war is over, here's what you know. All of your Confederate money becomes zero. It's worth nothing. It loses all of its value. And you know that's coming quickly for you. What would any sane person do? Any sane person would look at all of his Confederate money and realize, I better start working really hard now to transfer that into U.S. dollars so that after the war, I've actually got something that means something. Something that's actually valuable. Now now just transfer that, transpose that on your life, my life. Jesus, Matthew 6, Paul here is giving you inside information. Your life is coming to a close probably sooner than you think. And when your life comes to a close, every cent that you own, do you know how much it's worth? Zero. Zero. Wouldn't it be wise in light of that for us to start transferring currency into what will actually mean something and be valuable when you die and when I die? I mean, wouldn't that be a wise thing to do to start like actually being concerned about this idea of of storing up treasures for ourselves later on, of enlarging our experience later on? If I've had one thing that I feel like the Spirit of God has just pressed down over me, it has been this question. Rodney, what is more real to you? Your next breath here, like in this world, in this time or eternity? What is more real to you? And if there's one thing that I would want God to, to make more real to us in the room, it would be to know that we are living forever. And what we do now can actually enlarge our experience of forever. Amen? Okay, so with that said, I'm going to take a second and we're going to open up the floor. Kevin's got a mic. Curtis has got a mic. And I want you to know this. This is mutual encouragement for our church family. Again, not a theological debate, not another sermon. We've had one long enough already that the issue is we want to be mutually encouraged. And so if you've got some things that the Spirit of God has been stirring up in you over the last few months, it would be great for you to share that. And so if you're the person right now who's like, 
oh my gosh, I think I should, but there's no way. Like that person like fighting it like tooth and nail. Can I just, it's totally fine. This is a family thing, right? And so you should feel as comfortable if your family at home as you would in this and how you would share right now, right? And so with that said, if you've got some things that the spirit of God has really been pressing upon you and uh, stirring up in you, this is your chance to mutually encourage people across the room. So anybody want to take the first stab? Kind of break the ice for us, you know? I'd appreciate it. Yes. Um, my name is Scott Spaulding, and I've just been coming here for uh, a few times now. Probably this is the fifth time that I've been here. So love the church, love what everyone is doing here. For and sure. especially, especially this series has really spoken to me over the last year or so. Um, David Platt, in his book, Radical, says... The cost of discipleship is great, but I wonder if the cost of non-discipleship is even greater. And when Pastor Hobbs, you know, was talking about how we can focus on things that can be a trap, that can focus our time and our energy and our efforts in areas that aren't of value, um, I think that those words really speak uh, volumes. And um, I think that what Pastor Hobbs has to say is not only important for our own individual salvation, but ultimately really how God can work through us for the salvation of others, because ultimately Christ calls us to be disciples of all nations. So um, something that God allowed me uh, to be, uh, be able to go to and really ultimately gave me the privilege of taking part in was uh, about a year ago when the tornado hit Joplin. Um, I was able to go and uh, be in the search and rescue efforts and the recovery efforts afterwards. I went up there four times. And for those of you who have never been part of a disaster like that, who have never seen anything like that up close, words cannot even describe, pictures, videos, all that stuff cannot even describe actually being there and seeing people hurt and broken and desperate. The sights, the sounds, everything that you see ultimately... um, will be in your mind forever. But one of the great things that I did see while I was there is even though there were people who were completely broken, um, there was also a lot of hope and a lot of love. Um, Those who were broken typically were ones who were really focused on their possessions. And a lot of them had acquired their possessions over their whole life. And when they lost everything, they were shattered. Their life was gone. Their identity was gone. But those who believed in Christ and who looked at the bigger picture about how God was working, even in the midst of that storm, and the hope and the love that other people from across the country and across the world brought to that place was truly amazing. Um, There were people that drove hundreds of thousands of miles to do some of the simplest things. I talked to some people who were from California who um, came up there, dropped everything that they were doing, their families, their work, all that kind of stuff, to pass out bottles of water in the destruction zone. And 
so many people said, you know, where is God in the midst of all this disaster and all this destruction and, and taking these things from us, all our possessions, our family and everything. And when I saw that, when I saw that love of people wanting to bring hope to people, I thought that's exactly where God is. He's right here, right in the middle of all of this. So when we talk about reaching a broken and a lost world, um, when we look at the bigger picture um, and focus on that, I think that it helps us to realize that the possessions that we do have ultimately can be used for a greater good. So for sure. Um, so yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing. <clears throat> Who else? Just over the last couple of months, things that as we've been working through these various passages, the spirit of God's really been wrestling some things up in you. I've got like 30 minutes, so no worries. <laughs> not, not a worry at all. Mike, save the day right there. Appreciate you. Wow, I should have stayed at my seat. <laughs> so I don't have anything prepared. Um, but like Scott, I think I've been here for five weeks, something like that. And, uh, it's been, it's been a dramatic shift in my life to, uh, to be under this new teaching. And I'd just like to confess that I've really had a heart of greed, uh, up until, till. And God is, God is slowly just uh, tearing that away, I think. Um, my wife would be the first one to tell you that I scrutinize every dollar we spend. And, um, and it's not that I desire materialism or, or things. You know, we've, our cars are paid off and we, you know, are very... Um, careful with the way we use our money and we want to be generous for uh, people that are in poverty and things. But yet I still look at our, sa our savings account and our checking account and I just have this grip on it. And I'm not living, haven't been living a, a life of an open hand, but it's just been, you know, um, I just, rather than trusting God, my trust has been in well we have this to fall back on and um there's just been recently there's been a few events that have uh i think god's really began to test where my affections are mm -hmm. and pointing bringing my heart back to the lord and and uh trusting in him and and uh not trusting in these earthly things i've yeah. Before I came here, I think we were kind of under a, a more of a doctrine that was like, hey, you know, give to God because he's going to bless you. 
rather than give to God because he's already given you more than you could ever ask or hope for yeah. uh, through Jesus, the eternal life that we have. For sure. So, yeah, I just wanted to confess that. And uh, thank you. Thanks, Mike. For sure. Hey, and just to clarify, I mean, you, you may, it's perfectly fine if you stand up and have a one, one sentence something. And so, you know, if you don't have to be like profound, you know what I'm saying? So it's whatever. Yeah. A couple weeks ago, I looked at the questions you, you put online, the homework questions, yeah. and they were, frankly, too hard for me to look at. Yeah. And it, it, it led me to believe that stuff is just is still too important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing that, Kurt. Hi, I'm J.R. Starch. My wife, Heather, and I and our son, Matthew, have been coming out for a couple of months. Uh, Wanted to address maybe just a little slightly different angle. We learned a tough lesson about four years ago that we're still slugging through. It's, it is James talking about perseverance, and that is the other side of this equation we talked about this morning, and that's debt. Yeah. Uh, made some bad decisions in business, been down that road of failing and being brought to humility. And uh, unfortunately, it's been one we've, uh, what it's caused us to be under is slavery. A slavery to debt. Uh, that uh, was business-related and it seeped into everything else. And, and it, was, it was derived from wanting to be successful. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't, uh, wasn't chasing the money, it was chasing the power. Yeah. Uh, learned that tough lesson. And sometimes, uh, you know, we, uh, we have a funny saying, I'm a pilot, and we have a funny saying, it takes 10,000 nuts and bolts to put an airplane together, and it takes one nut to scatter it all over the runway. <laughs> and it's, it takes a long time to put it back together. And that's exactly what this business lesson has been for us because it's had such a permeating effect in our personal life. The things that we've, uh, that we've had to give up and we realized we didn't really need anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, so for those who are suffering through that part, um, the perseverance really is the end goal. It's being righteous in every decision, learning how to have discipline so that if God decides to bring us out from under the debt someday, uh, when that happens, uh, that we'll be that much more accountable. Uh, for for every blessing we have. and and we're still blessed yeah. so but we're glad to be a part of this church family too thanks jr i appreciate it uh okay miss janice um we're relatively new here but um and i now appreciate the series because it has renewed my efforts but the main thing I have a comment on is what it's done with my children and how I haven't been that diligent to teach them and be that open with them. And now they're asking me more about it. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. That Yeah, for sure. That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I recently had to start making my own money Yeah. after a long time and, and just depending on God for enough. And, and when it hadn't seemed like it's been enough, the beauty of giving is to dispel all fear. Yeah. For me, that's what it's been. You know, to, obe- to be obedient and giving um, isn't to get back from God. It's the beauty of knowing that he's going to provide when you give. Yeah. And, it, and it takes your eyes off yourself and puts them on other people and blessing other people. And um, he's been dispelling all my fears for several years now. And that's just one more 
thing that he came back around to yeah. and has dispelled my, dispelled my fears of giving. That's great. Thanks, Fonda. We'll do one or two more, and we'll have to be fairly quick. And so, yeah, Miss Hi. Um, I haven't been coming to all the sermons because I do child care, but my husband's been filling me in. And um, I feel like God really wants me to um, tell you about my sin and that you can, even though my husband and I are broke, uh, you can, (laughs) (laughs) it's true, you can still be greedy and a snob when you're poor. Um, And my neighbor came over to borrow some eggs the other day. And she wanted five eggs. And I was like, well, that's a lot. (laughs) And and I get the good brown eggs that are cage-free and they're fed whole grains and omega-3s. And then my husband reminded me that those are not our eggs. Those are God's eggs. So I gave her five eggs. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Th- yeah. <laughs> Thanks. For- <laughs> you know, we could have shortened the whole sermon down and just done that and gone home. <laughs> okay, any, any last parting shots and, and we'll be done. Yes. Um, my name's Lynette. Um, yeah, I'm Susan Smarkus. Um, I've just been operating in some lies and I didn't even realize, I mean, they were yeah. truth to me. Um, last summer, God seemingly out of the blue said, um, I want to teach you how hard it is for your husband to tithe or to give. And in your weekly allowance that you get, I want you to tithe out of it. I sat for three days and bawled. <laughs> Because I thought, I can't do that. I, mm-hmm. We don't have that kind of money yet. Just can't do that. He worked in me. He worked so good. So amazing. And then I got scared again and I pulled back. Mm-hmm. And I pulled that money back into my way of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. When I was operating with under his control, I had more than enough money. As soon as I pulled it back, I began to not make it to the end of the week again. Mm. And I was having to go back to my husband and say, can I have another $5 or $10 or $15? I've got to buy this and we don't have it. I'm coming to him and then sharing, you know, what had happened. Um, He said that God had been dealing with him to give more and that he had been doing the exact same thing. saying, I can't. What will my wife think? We, are we going to be able to make it? And it was like in that point of being able to say, okay, we're just going to jump in, do this. And God has mercifully just um, supplied every need, (laughs) not everyone. But again, I just, I, until this series, I did not realize the lies that I had been in. One, that we had worked hard all these years and we deserved it. Mm. Um. And then you preached on stewards <laughs> um, that we owned the other 90%. Mm-hmm. And you preached on the steward <laughs> um, that I was a generous person. And then you preached on the Macedonians mm-hmm. that I should stockpile. And then you preached on the rich fool. 
And that God, I, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I thought of God as our insurance plan. If you give enough, just enough, then you'll be okay. You might not be great. You might not be full of wealth, but you'll be okay. If you just give just enough, then he'll give just enough for you. And these are the lies that I've been living in. And I'm so thankful that God has used you to shine a light in that lie. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. The spirit of God has been really good to us in that. Thank you so much for sharing. Okay, let me end with this quote from A.W. Tozer. And as I read it, I want you to think in terms of money and possessions as you're thinking about the content of it. So he is contrasting a person that's got real authentic faith, a real follower of Jesus, with a person who has a pseudo-faith, a false faith, a, a fan of Jesus. Now think about in relationship to money and possessions, uh, think that grid as you listen to him Um, deal with both of these two people and what it means to have a real authentic faith and to be a fan. Here's how he says it. Soto faith or false faith always arranges a way out in case God fails. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift attributes. For true faith, it's either God or total collapse. And not since Adam first stood up on God on, on earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. The man of pseudo-faith will fight for his verbal creed, and I love this statement, but refuse flatly to allow himself to get into a predicament where his future must depend upon that creed being true. He always provides himself with secondary ways of escape so that he will have a way out, uh, you know, if the roof caves in. The faith of Paul or Luther was a revolutionizing thing. It upset the whole life of the individual and made him into another person altogether. It laid hold on the life and brought it under obedience to Christ. It took up its cross and followed along with Jesus with no intention of going back. It said goodbye to its old friends as certainly as Elijah when he stepped into the fiery chariot and went away into the whirlwind. It had finality about it. It realigned all life's actions and brought them into accord with the will of God. What we need very badly these days are Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they must do at the last day. For each of us, a time is coming when we shall have nothing but God. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you have used your, your words through Luke and through Paul. God, I pray that you have used your word through them to get us ready for that day when we have nothing but you. And God, I pray that the, the way we live now would be great evidence that we're ready for that day. It would be great evidence that we are preparing now for that day. And so, God, will you wean us off of an overdependence on things? God, will you deflate our view of what we need? God, will you help us to, to desire things less so we can desire you more? God, God, will you help us see that Jesus overflowed in generosity toward us? 
then God, may that help us to overflow in generosity toward the world and you. And so, God, we are thankful for, for how you've moved in and among us. We're thankful for, for what you've done within our church family. And God, I pray that it would be the start of moving us to a position to where we would be great stewards. So God, I pray by your grace that you would get us there. God, will you do that for us? God, we want to ask you just as simply as possible, will you you do that for our church family? God, will you free us from, from greed and give us a generous posture? God, will you help us see that you're really enough? That our heart can be fully satisfied in you, regardless of the circumstances? God, will you help us be humble, having our hope fully set on you? God, I pray that you would. And just before we finish, for those in the room who you're kicking the tires on Jesus in general and Christianity, I, I just want to encourage you that Jesus stands ready and willing to save. He's that generous, like ready and willing to save you today. You you throw your hands up, surrender your life to him, repent of sin and run to Jesus. And he stands so ready to redeem. And so God, we pray that that your spirit would have its way in us. It's in your good name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.